Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Health Leader Forge is a production of the University of New Hampshire's College of Health and Human Services. Today's guest is Kevin Callahan, the CEO of Exeter Health Resources in Exeter, New Hampshire. Kevin has been the CEO of Exeter Health Resources for nearly 30 years. His tenure spans many of the healthcare industry's most tumultuous changes. Kevin describes himself as a person who thrives on the challenge of change, and in this interview, he talks about how he has kept the organization adaptable. The original interview with Kevin is 90 minutes in length. I've produced an abridged 45-minute version as well as the 90-minute version. Both the abridged and the unabridged versions are available on the Health Leader Forge website. You are listening to the unabridged version of the interview. If you wish to listen to the other version of the interview, please return to the Health Leader Forge website. Welcome to The Forge, Kevin. Nice to be here. You studied history at Seton Hall in New Jersey, and you graduated magna cum laude. Does that mean you were a Jersey boy? Jersey boy, right. No, not in terms of the play, the Jersey right. Boys, but uh, born and raised in New Jersey. Twenty-six okay. years, I spent 26 years uh, in New Jersey. I uh, went to Seton Hall prep, uh, prep school prior to that, and then subsequently graduated from Seton Hall University. Okay, and you studied history. Uh, what, what, why did you choose to study history, and uh, do you still have an interest in history? I do. I actually have a very uh, deep uh, history. Um, uh, my particular focus was in colonial American history, okay. but uh, and in particular, uh, the influence of um, uh, the British um, and their their sensibilities regarding governance and uh, governments and the impact it had on uh, early colonial thinking. And I spent a lot of time focusing, in particular, on Thomas Jefferson. Oh. Interesting gentleman are in our American history. Uh, uh, suffice it to say, a brilliant man in his own right. Yes. Um, so yeah, uh, but I also have a pretty deep interest in the history of leadership across the different um, uh, centuries, um, and so particularly in the uh, 20th century leadership, I read a fair amount. Um, okay. Have great admiration for some of our uh, great 20th century leaders, from ta- uh, from Teddy Roosevelt uh, to Theodore Roosevelt to Winston Churchill. Um, particularly right now, I'm focused on. Uh, Exploring and reading quite a bit about the, uh, the Battle of Britain and Winston Churchill's role in that. So, All right. Yeah. Great. After you graduated from Seton, what did you do? Well, I, you know, when I was originally in Seton Hall and studying history, I kind of dabbled with the concept that I'd like to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also had a somewhat of a, a latent interest in law, and I felt as though that uh, an understanding of uh, history, uh, focusing uh, and particularly uh, American history, kind of gave me a broad uh, grasp of uh, not only um, uh, the organization of our country, but the organization of its laws and how they were ultimately uh, constructed, uh, certainly from the Declaration of Independence to the Constitution and so forth. And, and so I kind of had somewhat of an interest in, in law, uh, but I wasn't uh, convinced either way uh, that I, what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so um, from there, I uh, needed to work. And I knew that if I was going to go to graduate school, um, uh, either you know, to study law or to study something else, I needed to 
kind of collect sufficient resources to get myself through graduate school. So I started working in a hospital, uh, and uh, my sister uh, at that time was a nurse. Um, and um, so I thought, well, it's a good place to work. Um, I would kind of figure out what I, where I ultimately wanted to go, what direction I wanted to go in. They paid well, <clears throat> and I knew a lot of people that uh, worked there. And so, so I, I worked a summer in the hospital after I graduated. What did you do? I worked in hyperbaric medicine. I actually started working there. Now, and now that I kind of reflect on it, I started working there my junior year of college. Okay. I, um, uh, a very active uh, uh, scuba diver, spent a lot of time diving around the Western Hemisphere. It's, uh, that got me interested a little bit in hyperbaric medicine. And so I worked uh, in hyperbaric medicine for probably close to three, almost four years uh, between uh, the last two years of college and about two years after college. So as I spent that time uh, in hyperbaric medicine, and as a result of that, getting very much uh, enmeshed in, in the organization of a hospital and how it ran, and I was quite fascinated by it. <clears throat> and um, I remember somewhere my senior year, toward the end of my senior year, uh, perhaps, um, going, uh, making an appointment to speak with um, uh, one of the administrators of the hospital to try to understand what he did. Okay. And so um, we, ch we chatted, I chatted at some length, and that kind of piqued my interest in understanding a little bit more about working in a hospital from a leadership perspective, what it meant, uh, what would be the necessary educational requirements to pursue to be able to fulfill that aspiration. And that kind of pivoted me away from law and pivoted me away from teaching colonial history um, to considering a career in healthcare management. And um, there I went. Okay, so you went to um, George Washington to get mm -hmm. your, was it a, um, it was an MA? MHA. An yep. MHA, okay. Yep. Uh, and uh, how did you choose George Washington and how was that experience? Experience, well, experience was phenomenal. Uh, it was a, just a great experience. It, it was in part constrained by uh, you know, wanting to stay still on the East Coast. Uh, I had a, a, an aging parent, had a lot of connections on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. Also had a lot of connections in Washington, D.C. Uh, for a variety of reasons. And George Washington uh, University, when I went down there to interview, I was just really impressed with the faculty. And importantly, I was impressed by the environment in which it was operating uh, in, specifically the political environment of Washington, D.C. It was vibrant. Um, at that time, uh, I'm thinking back, uh, there was an enormous amount of work that was going on from a health planning perspective. National health planning laws were, were beginning, uh, beginning to evolve. Carter, President Carter, uh, just uh, uh, come in uh, in 1976, so uh, we were somewhat uh, through his term. Uh, as a president, and there was a lot of work being done from a, from a national perspective in health planning. So it was really a hotbed of really a lot of uh, interesting work going on from a healthcare perspective. So George Washington University being in Foggy Bottom, uh, merely being a few blocks away from the Capitol, and in, a, in a, just an incredibly rich environment, politically, socially, intellectually, uh, it was just a great place to go, and I liked the faculty, and I liked the people that I interviewed with. And so it was a pretty easy decision for me. Yeah. So you, you, did your, you did your degree at George Washington, and the next thing I saw on your CV was, was Exeter. Did you do anything in between? or did you Yeah, I did two years postgraduate work <clears throat> in Fall River. Um, the, uh, you're, you were required, and I still think you are at George Washington, you were required to do a one-year residency program, kind of an insight to residency where you spent time working in a 
healthcare environment for a year. Um, <laughs> so uh, my first residency, that and you didn't really have a lot of choice in residencies at that point in time. Um, and so I was assigned a residency uh, to go evaluate. And that residency was actually here in New Hampshire. It was uh, in Manchester. Um, and I came into the airport. It was, I think it was about 35 below zero. The city had gone through <laughs> an incredible ice storm and nothing worked. <laughs> I was leaving Washington, D.C., where most things work, but not everything worked. And, uh, it was, and I was particularly interested in working in health systems that were merging or contemplating going through mergers, uh, through a merger. And, and so at that time, it, um, the hospital now was a Catholic Medical Center, uh, which was a okay. result of a merged hospital on the uh, west side of uh, Manchester. And, so, uh, and I had a great interview there, um, but there was just something about coming this far north. Uh, in just what I consider to be really just uh, kind of gnarly weather. Yes. Uh, and uh, again, being from New Jersey and spending time in Washington. So I was interested in the, in the uh, residency, but not maybe overly enthralled. Okay. So I came back and uh, my professor at that point in time uh, conferenced with him and said, I don't think I want to go there. <laughs> and he goes, well, I don't think you really have a choice. <laughs> and, and I go, well, what does that mean, uh, Professor Ginsig, Leon Ginsig? And he goes, well, you know, there's not many residencies in America, in the East Coast, that involve mergers. And I think you'd be best taking that one. And I said, I don't want to take it. And so he kind of left it at that. He goes, well, I'm going to give you some time to think about it, and then why don't you circle back to me? And so I did. I gave it a few days and kind of did some more thought. I gave some more thought about the environment, both the, both the uh, the hospital system and the and the uh, the environment of Manchester itself, and came back to Professor Ginsick and said, "I'm not going." Okay. And so he goes, "Well, there's a good chance that you're not going to have the residency of your choice." And I go, "Well, then that's okay. I'll figure it out somewhere or the other." So, probably about two weeks later, uh, he came back to me and he goes, "We have a residency opportunity at this point in time." I think he's going to maybe send me to Hades. <laughs> we have a residency opportunity for you, and it's in a place called Fall River. <clears throat> in Fall River, Fall River, Massachusetts. I go, well, sounds interesting. I don't know where it is, but tell me about it. And so it, this was, again, a uh, health system that was merging, Union Hospital and Truesdale Hospital, now South Coast Health System, which includes New Bedford and a couple of other health systems down there. And, <clears throat> and it sounded really interesting. And uh, so I came up for an interview uh, in Fall River, <clears throat> met the CEO at that point in time, and was um, totally uh, struck by the opportunity, the intellectual opportunity to really learn about the merging of two organizations, both, both from a business perspective, an economic perspective, a corporate perspective, but the merging of two very different cultures. Yeah. Uh, and so um, I spent um, two years there. Uh, one year I did my required residency. And they asked me to stay and do a, uh, a second-year fellowship uh, there. So I spent two years in Fall River. Okay. And so, um, and I learned a lot, um, a lot there. Uh, and um, That's an exciting time to be in an organization when you're It really through. is. There was a lot going on. It was, I would have to characterize it as an incredibly positive and an incredibly negative learning experience. You saw the, both the best and the worst of organizations trying to come together organizationally. A lot of... Um, organizational infighting, uh, there was <laughs> conflicts amongst board members, conflicts amongst two different communities. It was really quite interesting to see how uh, two community assets with their own deep, rich traditions uh, were attempting to come together and create one 
uh, entity. And so I learned a lot from that. But it had also persuaded me at that point in time that I don't know if I want to stay in healthcare. So really, no. Okay. I was going to go back, and I, I kind of dabbled with the thought of going to law school. So I took my uh, LSATs, did well in them, was accepted in law school, and was seriously thinking about going to law school to, to do healthcare law. Okay. I liked healthcare. I figured I'd be really good on the corporate side of healthcare law, and uh, so uh, before I made that final decision, though, a good friend of mine, which will bring me up to Exeter who was a uh, executive at uh, this merged health system, a system attempting to complete the merger, in Fall River says, you know, there's an interesting place that I think you ought to go take a look at. I don't know. You might be a good lawyer, but I think you'd be a better hospital executive. Okay. Really? Where's that place? In New Hampshire. And I'm like, <laughs> not New again. Hampshire. <laughs> yeah, not again, New Hampshire. And he goes, yeah, it's a, it's a small organization up in, uh, in Exeter, New Hampshire. And so I say, yeah, let me think about it. I'm, I'm kind of uh, thinking I want to go in a different direction. So his office is down uh, from mine, and he was good friends with the CEO that was up here at this time. And at, at least once a day, are you going to go up there and take a look at that position? This is a position that's open. You know, take a look at it. it. Sounds like a perfect match. You know, if you don't like it, you can always leave. <laughs> Excuse me. You can always leave and go back to uh, law, uh, go to law school. I don't know. Okay, I'll come up and know interview. So I came up and interviewed uh, with the CEO at that point in time, and um, I didn't really take the interview all that serious. You know, it was maybe more for the sake of satisfying um, uh, my friend uh, back in Fall River and to, you know, out of a professional courtesy because he had reached out to the CEO here. This position was open. Right. And uh, and vouched for my upstanding character uh, as an individual. And so, um, so I, I, I was convinced I wasn't going to like it when I first came up, but I was surprised. Okay. Um, I was surprised by the people that worked here. I was surprised by the depth of their commitments um, to community, uh, to the community that they served. And I was curious to pursue it more. And so I came back for a more formal interview with the board chairman and, and uh, gosh, I think probably the entire organization at that point in time. And so um, I was offered a position here. I committed to stay no more than two years. <laughs> so, because I wasn't sure how it was all going to work out, but I said, you know, I can I can make a commitment for two years. Um, and so I committed for two years, and I stayed for 30, 33 years, something like that. And that's how I got here. Wow. All right. So let's talk a little bit about Exeter for a second, sure. and then we'll come back to the organization itself. So uh, since this podcast is is uh, being listened to from by people from outside New Hampshire, um, sure. who probably knew about as much know about as much about Exeter as you did before mm-hmm. you got here. Um, I'm making you the temporary internet ambassador sure. for Exeter. Uh, what and and Rockingham County? Sell us on the area. Sure. Um, well, initially, as you can tell, I wasn't totally sold on the area, so everything was frozen over, and I decided I didn't want to come. And so, you know, cycle forward two years later, uh, and I come and I stay for thirty plus years. And so, um, it is. Uh, it is a unique environment to be in for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, the state itself is small, relatively small, 1.3 million uh, people in the state. Um, and the seacoast itself geographically is kind of a unique um, area. It's It's got a lot of things that I like. I like to snowboard, so it's got mountains. I love the ocean, so it's got the ocean. Um, it is a, a community that is... Uh, intellectually uh, precocious. There's a lot of very smart people that live in this community. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people that are very committed to the work that they do, whether it's in healthcare or otherwise. 
It's a state that is still trying to find its way in some ways um, in a rapidly changing global economy and, and, and a global society and national society. Uh, it is deeply rooted in some of its very old traditions dating back to King George, perhaps, uh, and, uh, and yet struggling to figure out how it plays a role in contemporary society, whether it's in education, in the case of the UNH, uh, and other educational systems, school systems in the state, in the case of healthcare, in the case of employment growth, it's trying to figure out how it can maintain it, a contemporary role in the growth of, of the state economy. Um, it is uh, imminently accessible. Uh, the legislative process is imminently accessible. Our leaders are imminently accessible. And every four years, every presidential candidate that comes to New Hampshire is imminently accessible. It's a fabulous place to raise a family. Boston is close by. You know, it's, it's, it really is just a fabulous place to be. Uh, and for me, um, notwithstanding the geography, it, it, who you work with, your colleagues, really frame um, in many, many ways how rich a life experience you're going to have. You've got your family for sure, uh, but you spend the 30 of your waking hours, at least sometimes, uh, in the company of your colleagues. Mm-hmm. So you combine a fabulous um, uh, geographic environment uh, with great colleagues to work with. That's why I've chosen to stay. And I've recruited executives from around the country. And the 30 plus years I've been recruiting executives uh, into this organization, not a single one has left. Wow. And so uh, they've come from everywhere. And yeah. so it's a, it is a unique place. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, when we recruit physicians, most stay, uh, yeah. few leave. Uh, yeah. And so uh, it's got the right combination of uh, factors, I think, that appeal to uh, people that are looking for uh, an environment that can, they can raise a family, raise themselves, grow, expand, um, and have accessibility to some of the brightest institutions in Boston and some great yeah. institutions here. And it's a great place to be. All right. So they recruited you uh, in they 1981. Did. And mm-hmm. you, what was your first position? What, 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 executive what vice you? president. Wow. So I was executive vice president. And as a result of that, I served uh, in executive capacity whenever the CEO was not present. Uh, but also had principal operating responsibilities for uh, the ambulatory services of the organization as well as the support services of the organization. So um, that time, Exeter was a relatively small small organization. I think we only had about 300 employees. I think we're somewhere around 1,700 at this point in time. And so it was a, um, in some ways, it was a smaller organization. You knew Mm -hmm. everyone Mm -hmm. and they knew you. And and in some ways, that made communication that much more intimate and direct. so it's become a little bit more complex. It's become more challenging as we've grown over the years. But it has um, not lost um, the values uh, that attracted me here as an organization, which kind of ties into some of the questions you had about culture. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's retained an intimacy, not, yeah. notwithstanding its size, um, that enables people to communicate uh, and stay connected as colleagues. Great. What did you learn during that, uh, during that first five years or so that you were here? That kind of prepared you for your next role, which was CEO. Sure. Uh, that, yeah, that came uh, pretty quickly. Um, well, I think when you when you come out of graduate school and you spend a couple of years uh, postgraduate work, you think you know a lot. You think, um, and in some ways, uh, perhaps uh, more than other people that. Uh, had gone directly from graduate school without spending time either in a residency or in a fellowship, 
in the middle of the battles, uh, I think in some ways I probably knew a lot more than most graduate students coming directly out of the classroom setting. But I didn't have any idea how much I had to learn uh, coming into this position. And so, and, and this was a relatively small organization. I left a much larger organization uh, mm -hmm. in Fall River to come here. Um, and so in some ways, um, um, I don't think I appreciated the total complexity of any organization that no matter whether you have 100 beds or whether you have 1,000 beds, um, you have an amazing uh, degree of complexity in any organization. You combine services with people and people with different backgrounds and educational disciplines, all trying to collaborate um, and converge on providing patient care in an environment that is the most probably one of the most regulated uh, uh, industries in America with enormous uncertainty over the economics underlying healthcare. Um, it created uh, a degree of complexity, I think, that I did not fully appreciate on the one hand. Um, on the other hand, what I uh, came to appreciate is that leadership doesn't have to be necessarily complex. Uh, and I think uh, uh, being able to work in a small organization initially really caused me to understand the, the critical essence of effective leadership that can ultimately be multiplied over any scale of organization. You know, and there are elements that are true in any leadership position so that whether you're leading a team, you know, platoon, or whether you're leading, you know, 475,000 people in the case of IBM globally across, you know, different countries, there are elements of leadership that ring true no matter what you're doing. And so I learned those here in a, in a very intimate and direct way, and that was a real positive about coming here. Can you give me an example of something that you learned during that period? Absolutely. Um, the thing that people ask me about is, you know, what are some of the m most important leadership constants that you have to have? Mm. And there, there is no question. What struck me is that leadership is an incredibly lonely uh, uh, position at times. Um, not that you're isolated, because people will look at any CEO, any president, any leader, and you're surrounded by people all the time. And I am. Absolutely. It's like it's yeah. nonstop. It just goes nonstop. There are times, you know, when I go out for a run or I go for a bike ride, I just I don't want to hear anything. I don't want to listen to anything. But your decisions uh, and the consequences of your decisions are very lonely decisions at times. And um, even in the instance where you're not actually controlling other elements of your organization, you bear the responsibility for those elements. And when something goes wrong, it's a very lonely time uh, to recognize that truly the buck does stop with you. Right. So it, the thing that I learned a lot out of that is that is to be comfortable in that loneliness, um, okay. uh, to, to, to embrace it for what it is. Um, and when there's a singular level of accountability, there's a singular level of accountability. And with that, a unique loneliness to yourself. You're alone with your thoughts, your decisions, with your consequences. And learn to savor that and learn to understand those feelings and learn from them. Um, and so that was powerful for me. And, you know, and I know one of the questions that you pose is, you know, what are some of the more difficult decisions that you've had to make? Sure. They're all difficult. Okay. You know, you know, when you, when you think about it, and I think the degrees of difficulty, maybe the more you make, the more sanguine you become, that, well, that wasn't all that hard. <laughs> but when you step away from it and look at it, the consequences of any decision, small or large, are always significant. And so, given the fact that you're making decisions continuously, there are certainly degrees in which one decision has much more uh, greater significance or consequence than another. But I 
I rarely see a decision that has to be made that's a simple decision, you know. And okay. It's, um, at your level. At my level. Okay. Uh, and so uh, they all have consequences, and you need to understand what those consequences are. And in some cases, you will never understand the totality of those consequences until after the decision is made. Hmm. And so your process, small or big, for making decisions is a continuous process of calculation, of assessing the risk, of assessing the benefit, to being able to do that in the moment, uh, to be able to do that in a short cycle time, or in some cases to do it over a long cycle time. Can you give me a, a specific example mm -hmm. of, of a decision that you're talking about? So we get a sense of the scope of sure. what you're talking about. So let's, um, uh, we make the decision, uh, by way of example, uh, we make uh, the decision to buy a laboratory, <clears throat> uh, a uh, for-profit uh, commercial laboratory we decided to, uh, to buy. Um, and um, we, uh, it was my pre predecessor, the CEO, said we ought to buy this laboratory. And I, okay, well, why should we buy it? And so we kind of went through the analysis um, and uh, made the decision that we would buy the laboratory <clears throat> and jointly acquire the laboratory with another health system, with another hospital. And so that decision, both in terms of the acquisition of the laboratory, integrating our laboratory operations into it, into a commercial enterprise, both here as well as at the other hospital, having to... Um, significantly restructure the laboratory, bring in professional management, um, and elevate that laboratory so that it could sustain itself, had a multi-year consequential uh, uh, chain of uh, implications for our organization, all positive okay. in many ways. Okay. And so it was a very successful decision to buy the laboratory. Mm -hmm. um, cycle forward probably about 10 years later, maybe 12 years later, Okay. Um, I concluded that we should sell it. Oh, okay. We so had, things had changed? Things had changed. Okay. It was not necessarily a core competency of ours. The valuation of the commercial laboratory had reached a significant apogee. Um, and um, it had become much larger uh, than what we had contemplated. It's, it, had, it was providing services in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Hawaii, um, wow. and it had grown significantly. And so... Uh, we decided to sell our ownership interest in it and probably got about a five or six hundred percent return on our original investment, still maintaining contract with the laboratory um, to provide services to the hospital's uh, uh, laboratory services as well. And so pretty significant consequential decision in terms of people, systems, uh, other organizations. Uh, and then just as importantly, when, you, when you're at your high point, when you're doing the best that you can, having the courage to say, maybe we've reached the maximum limits and don't want, we don't want to take any more uh, risk uh, associated with the laboratory. And it's moving in a direction that's not necessarily within our core competencies. Mm -hmm. And to have that um, courage and insightfulness to say, it is appropriate to, to exit a business. It's hard for a lot of healthcare organizations to leave something. You know, we're creators. We create right. services for communities and rarely do we abandon services or go in a different direction. So. That, that's a, you know, that is a great uh, example of that. Um, additionally, we've made decisions on uh, investments in technology. We've made uh, in, uh, decisions in investing in services. Uh, somewhere in your questions there, you referenced the uh, decision to joint venture, to enter into affiliation with um, Mass General Hospital for yes. radiation oncology mm -hmm. and medical oncology. Um, you know, we... Those are decisions that we make that have long-term consequences um, mm -hmm. uh, to our organization, and hopefully we manage that such that the consequences are all good, 
and that it's beneficial to our patients. But in all instances, it involves people, it involves tens of million dollars, tens of millions of dollars of capital equipment and capital facilities. So the consequent the, the decisions are pretty significant. Um, so that would be an example. Okay. All right. Just one or so, two. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Let's talk a little bit about Exeter Health Resources. Sure. Okay. So it, it has three components that I, I've observed. Principal ones. Okay, principal yep. ones. The, the hospital, core physicians, and Home the care. Rockingham yep. VNA and hospice. So yep. let's talk a little bit about the hospital. How big is the hospital? The uh, hospital, which is the original uh, part of the company, that's what had existed here for, it's probably about 110 years now. It's a Hundred beds. It was okay. hundred. It was hundred beds when I got here. Oh, um, it was. Oh, yeah. Okay. It hasn't changed at all. There was great pressure on us to increase beds. I have a um, a somewhat um, conservative view of investing in beds, largely because my view is that uh, beds are expensive to build. You do need to have them, but I had a sense uh, many years ago that the pressures to um, reduce hospitalization, reduce length of stay would create a situation where we could have stranded capital beds that are being underutilized. And so when you looked at some of the classic forecasting models for inpatient capacity, if we had applied those uh, classic forecasting capacity models, we would have built another 50 beds, 150 beds. I didn't believe in those models given what I saw occurring over the horizon in terms of pharmacological, technological interventions that would transition a lot of inpatient care to the outpatient setting. Um, demographics were changing, and you know a lot of times the forecasting models are significantly biased based on historical perspective. Right. So we decided not to expand our bed capacity. We renovated, we invested in, in the existing capacity, and so it's 100 beds. Our length okay. of stay is a little short of four days. Sixty um, percent, close to maybe 60 percent of our revenue stream comes from the outpatient basis anyway. Okay. Uh, and um, so it's a little bit of a different viewpoint. Okay. All right. And core physicians? Um, large, large multi-specialty group practice. Uh -huh. um, About how many physicians? hundred and, oh, it's over or, 100 uh, physicians. And, yeah. 100 physicians and, and as well other, other yeah, kinds of other, providers? other providers. So probably a total uh, NPs, nurse practitioners, physician mm -hmm. assistants. I think they have a total of about 500 employees, somewhere right around there, 400 employees. Uh, I think all told, total providers, physician and non-physicians, probably close to 150 uh, okay. individuals. We have employed physicians for 20, 25 years. Uh, okay. We've been doing it for a very, very long time. It's a model that I've believed in, in terms of a, of a way of integrating physician services into the healthcare delivery system. That wasn't common 25 years ago. <laughs> no, it wasn't common at all. Yeah. Not at all. And it's becoming it's, more common now. Well, it is. Well, and, that was, and there was also an extensive period of time in which health systems shed their physicians that they employ because they were losing a lot of money on them. Uh, and so there was a great buildup in the 1990s it, with uh, health systems acquiring physician practices, just acquiring them without any rational basis of understanding why they were acquiring them, uh, in part driven by some of the reimbursement models that were out there, particularly capitation that was out there. And so, but they didn't really understand what they were doing and why they were doing. They didn't have a long-term viewpoint of it. And so as quickly as they got in, they got out as, as losses mounted into the millions of dollars. We have been in, uh, doggedly pursuing the uh, physician employment model uh, because we believe that's a good way to integrate. Uh, we had anticipated that uh, because of changing demographics, most physicians at some point in time, not all, but most physicians would prefer to work in a corporate setting where the volatility is reduced relative to private practice or small uh, uh, group practice. 
the ability to deeply collaborate is enhanced because of investments in EMR that solo practices or small group practices can't make. And frankly, lifestyle choices of a whole new generation of physicians that are coming in that are uh, have a different view of what work is defined as. And so we've been providing physician services on an employment model basis, as I said, probably since, I don't know, 1990, maybe sometime okay. right around there. Now, Core Physicians doesn't just have an office here. It's a, yeah, scattered right. throughout Rockingham County. Okay. Um, and uh, my guess is, I think, maybe 14 office locations. I could be mistaken uh, with that. We have five, six principal ones and then smaller satellite ones, so covering okay. covering all of Rockingham County. Okay. Um, and these facilities kind of drive workload into the hospital? Well, well, they do. Well, they do, and other facilities. I mean, we, uh -huh. we don't, uh, our physician group, they admit mostly here, mm -hmm. um, many cases based on patient preference. They don't. A lot of cases, you know, if we're out in a peripheral area and patients prefer okay. to go to other communities, and that's where they, they would be admitted. Mm -hmm. The ability to care for patients that uh, in an organization that has an interconnected EMR is pretty powerful. Okay. And so, uh, and patients sense that as well. Uh, okay. Patients truly appreciate an integrated EMR so that whether they're in the physician office or in the hospital setting, the ED, patients have frequently articulated to us that they can appreciate having a global view of their health status so that people aren't fumbling around to try to figure out who you are. And additionally, there are a lot of specialty services that we don't uh, provide as a health system, and so those patients are referred elsewhere. And so uh, we, we're, yeah, we're scattered all over Rockingham County. Okay. Yeah. And then the Rockingham VNA and Hospice. Tell me a little bit about that. How, how, what's, how, do, how do we measure the program? Uh, Rockingham VNA Hospice uh, was an organization that was in financial failure. Uh, they approached us about a some way of incorporating them into us. At that point, I mean, home care has been uh, a economically challenged uh, industry generally. It kind of goes through these cycles of feast or famine based on kind of the political winds of reimbursement in Washington. And uh, Rocky and VNA had a pretty deep uh, history of providing home care services here as well as in the western part of Rockingham County and Merrimack uh, County. And so, but they were in significant financial distress. So they approached us, um, approached me, we evaluated them, uh, analyzed what changes would need to be made in the organization to make it viable. And so we integrated them uh, as a affiliate of our organization. Gosh, that's probably now about... Um, I'll say it's probably about 18 years ago, maybe uh, right around there, uh, 15 years ago. And so, uh, 18. So it's been a long time, uh, needless to say. And so uh, it, it is, it, our view about home care is that it would be a critical asset uh, to any health system mm -hmm. uh, that is looking to um, find uh, alternative settings in which care can be provided and depressurize the very expensive acute care setting. Uh, hospitalizations. And so we're able to shorten our length of stay because we have a, a pretty significant outlet for that uh, with home care. We had at one point in time also operated a 125-bed skilled and uh, intermediate care facility, which we uh, closed down. We operated that for a long, long, long time. Uh, but the economics of that became, you talk about decisions that are consequential. Yeah. The economics of that became so pernicious because of inadequate Medicaid reimbursement and declining Medicare reimbursement in the sophistication of care that we provide to complex patients, we had to make a decision to leave that uh, business. And so we did close that about uh, four years ago now. So Rockingham uh, is, uh, provides a, a very sophisticated level of home care. 
uh, for uh, patients. Um, what kind for, of things could a patient have done in their home? Uh, well, in, there's several things uh, that can be done. Or Hospi often hospice care okay. uh, can be done, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of uh, care that's provided is to chronic disease patients, chronic diabetes, chronic congestive heart failure, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, so you're dealing with respiratory support, you're dealing with in, uh, infusion support, um, uh, pharmacological support. Um, and uh, as well as uh, post-surgical follow-up. And so uh, we're able to discharge patients very rapidly from home, appropriately so, but rapidly, from the acute care setting to the home care setting, knowing that we have a pretty sophisticated and competent nursing home staff, nursing uh, home care staff. If you don't have that, you can't dis make the discharge. And so frequently okay. uh, patients will linger in the acute care setting waiting for the opportunity to be discharged at home. And, you know, the home care setting can, in itself can be a challenge from the standpoint of, you know, the sophistication of the patients, the complexities of the family. Uh, there's there's a lot of challenges to home care as well. But it provides, a, you know, most people prefer not to leave the home. You know, if they can receive their care at home, they would prefer to do that. And so we enable that. Okay. So you took over as CEO after about five years. Mm -hmm. um, uh, how did you grow into this role? So that was a long time ago. That's uh, in 85, so th yeah. almost 30 years ago. So how have you grown into this role? And I, I guess I would say, if you could go back to 1985 and talk to your 1985 self, what would you tell him? Hey, this is what, be, be prepared for this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what is, uh, I guess you're, you're not well prepared for the, the unknown things that come at you, and they come from everywhere. And so uh, if you were to look at it from the standpoint of regulatory changes, you know, mm -hmm. go, you know the changes that have occurred in reimbursement, changes that have occurred in technology, changes that have occurred in the way care can be delivered. Um, and I, you know, I'm kind of the person that I, I just expect change to come. Uh, it's part of okay. what I do. Um, mm -hmm. And when it, for me, uh, I'm actually in many ways more comfortable in chaos than not. Okay. Uh, and so um, I can draw, I can see I can connect dots that people don't even see the dots. I can make connections. I can see patterns. I can see trends. And so for me, what might appear to be, uh, you know, complete ambiguity is not complete ambiguity. There's uncertainty, mm -hmm. but there are pathways that you can see emerging, and those pathways represent choice points for you as a leader and as an organization. What I think is that what an I, important skill for someone a, sitting in your role? I think it's a critical skill. Okay. Um, you can manage by the numbers. You can lead by the numbers, uh, mm -hmm. but the numbers lie all the time. Okay. You know, so if I followed the numbers, we would have built uh, another extra bed, right? Right, and, and it would have been wrong. empty. Yeah. So numbers are important. You know, they kind of give you a reference point. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's probably the singular, singular greatest creation of mankind is mathematics. It's such an interesting abstraction. Mm -hmm. And so they're reference points uh, for our organization, but. Mm -hmm. You know, you could look at, if you think about even digital computing, there's zeros and ones. That's all they are. And yet you think about the complex tasks that zeros and ones can be, can perform if arranged in patterns. And so what I, I think as a leader is to be able to transcend the numbers. The numbers will certainly in some cases maybe reinfor reinforce your tuition. Mm -hmm. I'm, a very, I'm a very intuitive leader. Mm -hmm. um, and they can maybe cause you to pause kind of the the hard quantifiable data causes you to pause and maybe to think a little bit more deeply. Mm -hmm. 
But I think a, a significant part of leadership is intuitive. It's, uh, it's emotional. Mm-hmm. Not to be emotional, but there's an emotional component to it, especially mm-hmm. in healthcare where you're trying to understand the consequences of your decisions in human lives and communities. And I think there's a good part of it in which you need to know when to have risk on the table and when to take risk off the table. So I spend, uh, and I think a lot about things that may not be apparent on a sheet of paper. And so I abstract things from a lot of different parts of the economy, a lot of different parts of the political environment, a lot from a lot of different areas. And I assemble them, in my mind, to a sight picture, you know, a picture of what you see and how you envision the future, or how you envision even the opportunities that are going to face you today. And so I, I think it's very important to be intuitive, to be able to make connections to what might appear to be abstract things that at some point in time in the future converge mm-hmm. and create opportunity or threats. Um, to be anticip- an- anticipatory, I think those are really, really important. Any single leader, any single CEO can sit there and read a balance sheet, read a financial statement, sure. kind of do the you know the financial analytics that need to, be, need to happen in any organization that generates revenue and, and has a revenue cycle with it. But it's a lot more than that. And for an organization such as healthcare, where it is um, powerfully grounded in people, doesn't lend itself easily to automation for a variety of reasons at this stage, it is powerfully grounded in people taking care of people, doing things to people with all the frailties of, of, the, of human endeavor that are not easily mechanized, uh, with all the uncertainties uh, and recognizing that no human endeavor is error free and recognizing people do things um, uh, in, in the care of patients that also come from a deep emotional uh, commitment to their profession. So I think being a CEO, being a leader in healthcare requires a lot of complex skills, but I think above them all is uh, your ability to intuit and your ability to anticipate and your ability to be flexible uh, about the future. That sounds really interesting. I, I'm sitting here listening to you talk about that, and it sounds like you're your interest in history mm. kind of comes back around. Well, it comes maybe, back. You know, it does. You know, oh, sure right? it does. Yeah, history. Yeah. You, you, what is it? What they say? You're you're doomed to report it, to right. repeat it if you're yeah. not uh, if you don't yeah. understand it. Um, but it seems like the kind of intuition that you would have gotten, or, or maybe the, the kind of intuition that you had, would have interested you in history to begin with. Maybe. Uh, um, no, no question about it. You know, you think about uh, great leaders, and uh, you know, and I, uh, there's a lot of things that have in common. You know, and 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 so. Uh, your ability to connect to the people that you lead is really critical. And I, I tell people this, and we, you know, Exeter as an organization has had its ups and, ups and downs. I mean, it, the environment is remarkably challenging, and, and leadership is easy when things are easy. You know, it's, yeah, sure. sure, it's easy. Right. It's, when, it's when, when it all goes south, when it goes wrong. And it is then that you really begin to appreciate how people look to a single person to assure to find a pathway, to correct a situation, to provide an alternative uh, to the position that they're in. And there's no one else that can do that at that moment. And so, and if you think about the great leaders who were able to execute on the opportunity that was presented to them historically, they were able to do that, you know. And so whether it's Roosevelt, whether it's Shackleton, whether it's, you know, some of the great military leaders of our time, who threw the playbook away and, and understood that they had to deal with what was presented to them and improvise. And, you know, it's, it's really quite striking. And I, and I really think about anybody that's 
in a official capacity uh, of, of being a leader doesn't mean necessarily that they are a leader. And opportunities are thrown your way, they come your way to give you the opportunity to be the leader. Uh, and you have to choose. Wow. Okay. Let's talk just for a minute about governance. Exeter Health Resources is a nonprofit entity. Yeah. So you have a board. Talk a little bit about the board, your relationship with the board. Sure. So the board, um, yeah, the board, uh, most healthcare systems, as, as you know, have uh, a governing body. The board for Exeter Health Resources is a relatively small board compared to what uh, you might see in some healthcare organizations. It's about 13, 15 people. And it's, it has several critical responsibilities. Uh, number one is to establish the policies uh, that uh, govern our institution to ensure its, uh, its viability, its sustainability from an economics perspective, to ensure that it uh, provides uh, quality care that our uh, patients, customers come to depend on, to ensure that uh, we are uh, conducting ourselves in an ethical way, in a compliant way re relative to regulations and laws, um, to evaluate leadership, most importantly the CEO, and uh, ensuring that the leadership is present to execute on those policies and to provide guidance uh, for the board to think about as policies are formulated. And so uh, we uh, work very hard and work very closely with the board to ensure that the board is uh, diverse in its viewpoints and has a skill set that represents our future uh, demands. And so we, we have uh, board members that periodically turn over as, okay. we, as we look for uh, the skill sets that we think are important for a governing body governing in 2016, 17, and 18. And so uh, continuously eva evaluating how do we ensure fresh sets of eyes to consider our organization, different perspectives. And as I said, to also encourage, embrace diversity of thought, intellectual diversity uh, of viewpoints. And so that creates a challenge for, for leadership, CEO. Um, I've been here for 35 years, and I can't tell you how many boards have turned over over that time. And yet, um, I think what's important is that uh, as I work with the boards is to continue to sustain our values as an organization when we look at someone, when we evaluate a board member. How do they, how do they represent or match to our value system uh, and, uh, and the things that we hold uh, as important to our organization? And that's no different than when you evaluate anybody that you bring into an organization in the leadership position or in the board position. How do they advance your uh, capabilities as an organization? How do they uh, syncopate with your values as an organization? And how do they bring intellectual rigor to the decisions that loom in front of you? Um, and we've been very fortunate um, over the years to have just amazingly competent board members, just amazingly competent. I, are they all drawn from the community? Yeah, they local, are. Local They're community? Right. Okay. Local community, local community being, you know, within 30 miles. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. You have a unique viewpoint having been here for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. You've, you have been able to kind of stay ahead of the wave in a lot of ways. You, you made it through some, some major kind of seismic yeah. changes that you mentioned, um, you know, the shift to prospective payment. Yeah big shift to outpatient care, you, you saw that coming, you, yeah. you avoided it, uh, or, or you embraced, you, you it. Were, embraced yeah. it rather, yeah. rather than yeah. avoid it. You yeah. avoided making the mistake of, mm -hmm. of, of continuing in the old way. Um, and now, you know, you're, you're kind of in the midst of the uh, adjusting to the ACA and the implications of that yeah. policy change. Yeah. So kind of talk about some of the big changes that have happened during your tenure and kind of how, how Exeter has kind of thrived on them. Well, I think that's 
probably it, part of the reason why I've stayed here. I mean, would say, I mean, it's like I said, I thrive in ambiguity and chaos. I mean, mm -hmm. it, at some point in time, you got to make a decision, but um, that stimulation of uncertainty and um, volatility creates opportunity all the time. It just does, and it's just a question of how you, what pathway you see and which one you choose to take. Um, and so there are a lot of regulatory changes that certainly have happened, whether it's DRGs, whether it's APCs and, and the like, and obviously now um, the, uh, the Affordable Care Act and all the sequela that come from that. Um, and some of the changes uh, that occur are done to you. You know, it's like taxes, you know, it's like you pay mm -hmm. taxes. And so uh, DRGs, you got DRGs. APCs, you got APCs. ICD-10, you got ICD-10. I mean, it just goes on and on. And, and so there, uh, there is a uh, expected and predictable regulatory burden that has consequences to us in terms of the changes, but you, you have to take those in stride. Uh, and, and I, you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of part of the scenery, um, uh, I guess. And so I, I have enormous intolerance for people who complain about all the changes that are happening. And I always think about, well, what's the alternative to changes? You know, you know horse and buggy? I, don't, I just don't know what the alternatives are. And so, yeah. so for me, um, the, the, the speed of change is actually uh, striking in some ways. As an industry, however, when I think about the healthcare industry, we, if you think about the change, certainly in my career, I actually, and maybe I'm just becoming, uh, you know, kind of uh, diminishing the, the significance of some of the events that happened in the 70s or the 80s or the 90s, and I'm sure in the moment they were probably quite astonishing to me. Um, and yet when I look back, in some ways it's an industry that has remained relatively unchanged. Um, it's new facilities, a couple of new imaging things here and there, you know, PET scanners, CT scanners, RMI scanners. But in a lot of ways, it's remarkably the same. Yeah, we got computer terminals and we got EMR, but in, in, in a lot of ways, the work that we do here isn't significantly different. It's work that has existed. In some ways, it may have been automated as a result of uh, emails and, you know, uh, and networks and so forth. But the uh, front end of my career where a lot of people think a lot of change happened, I've come to conclude that it's not going to be like anything compared to the change that's going to happen, which I do okay. think is going to be deeper uh, and more transformative. And so, uh, you know, healthcare, you know, has been on this really remarkable ride. When I started in healthcare, when uh, healthcare spending was going to hit 10% of the GDP uh, of the country, all hell was going to break loose. We wouldn't sustain it. 20% now? Three trillion dollars a year, there, you know, plus or minus. Um, and so, healthcare for the longest period of time has in, in enjoyed uh, an enormous economic advantage as it has garnered resources from other sectors of the economy. Uh, and who can't thrive on compound annual growth rates of six to eight percent? I mean, I, Apple thrives very well on those kind of compound growth rates. The auto industry is pretty content with one or two percent compound growth rate on units, you know, sold on average. Healthcare, so you, you know, it's just amazing. I mean, it's just yeah. been great. Population grows. They want more healthcare. There's more technology. Fee for service reimbursement. You know, uh, Social Security Act, Medicare, uh, Medicaid, commercial insurance, employer-sponsored plans. I mean, really, it was a it was an amazing period in which it, uh, I think about. <clears throat> 
you know, what's gone on in terms of QE2, you know, with the, with the stimulus right. into the economy. Why right. would we expect, why are we surprised that we're at $3 trillion a year, right? Yeah. So I think about that, uh, and it's, it's been a period of uh, certainly changes, but not kind of the deep transform, transformative change that really sets the industry in a very different direction. I think we're on the verge of that. So what's going to drive it? What, what are the things? Uh, well, there are right? many factors that are driving it. In fact, uh, one of the you know, as I, uh, I presented to uh, you, uh, to one of the UNH classes a couple of years ago, and I put a picture of a Chinese ministry official up there. I said, "Do you know who this guy is?" Nobody knows. Said he's one of the most important uh, uh, factors in the United States economy. It was the it was the Chinese finance minister. He makes decisions on you know how much treasury uh, how much treasuries they want to buy, how much U.S. securities they want to buy, how they want to invest in the United States. He said that man alone. Just being somewhat facetious, probably has more impact on the on what's happening in healthcare than anything else that you can imagine. It's, it's not that alone. You know, I was using that more for hyperbole. Uh -huh. But uh -huh. so whether you 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 think about the global interconnectedness of, of economies, you think about the United States industry that historically has been largely insular from that, and as a result of that, has been able to afford the benefit great benefit expansion that has occurred and the wage expansion that had occurred up until probably the last ten years. You know, and the United States still is the world's largest economy, but that's changing. You know, it's being globally challenged as a dominant economy. Uh, we are significantly in debt. Now, you know, and there's a lot of views as to whether that's, you know, good or bad. Technologies, uh, dis truly disruptive technologies, which enable uh, the consumption of health care to be displaced regardless of geography and time, uh, is pretty significant, uh, and that is only starting to take hold. I would telemedicine kind telemedicine of thing? classic or, or, example. Okay. Telemedicine is a classic example. You know, your your smart you know, take your smartphone, six billion transistors on a single uh, chip on your phone. It's very intelligent um, and can change a lot uh, about the way healthcare is consumed and the way it's evaluated. Um, so you think mobile maybe is going to be a major? It already is. It already, you know, is. It already okay. is. Swipe your card, $40, you get a physician consult in 90 seconds. So um, transformative. Anytime yeah. you can, you know, just you know, change the time and place of uh, of consumption, it's really a remarkable event. It really is. And if you think about healthcare, it's always been predicated on a physician office, nine to five, and you, that's where you go. And if you get in, uh, you know, with, within two weeks, you consider yourself lucky. So uh, it's re it's you know, I, I can't quite say we're like the, the, the you know the cabbies out there fighting against Uber, you know, but right, right. it's going to be. I think it's going to be that transformative. And I think even beyond that, however. Uh, and that's just one a aspect of it. You know, the deep investigative resources that have gone into understanding uh, disease at the, you know, at the cellular level, at the, at the, at the uh, molecular level, at the, pro you know, at the, almost at the, uh, you know, at the kind of the protein level, and the work that's going on there to truly understand uh, how disease uh, uh, proceeds, how personalized it is, and how to um, uh, intervene with disease is going to find expression over the next 10 years. It's going to be pretty startling. How, how we afford that is another question, but nonetheless, it's, it, it's emerging. And so I kind of look at it as a convergence of, of many, many macro and micro economic considerations, enormous societal implications, technology, and it's like <laughs> when I talk to people, I say, well, why do you think healthcare is not going to be transformed like virtually any other American industry? Why do you think we're going to be immune? Why should we be immune? <clears throat> Transparency of data. 
you know, we just had this discussion this morning. Patients, uh, you know, shortly, um, if not by federal law or otherwise, by ac absolute demand, will have access to every single piece of information regarding their care within a day, four days at most. And some institutions, they're making it available immediately. So what has happened uh, in some ways is that healthcare has been able to regulate its own destiny, one might argue to ensure its destiny, through the, uh, through the collection, dissemination, and control of information. It's the ultimate definition of a profession in some ways. That's being shattered. And so um, when you have an empowered consumer who is knowledgeable, and if they're not that knowledgeable about their health care, are enabled through expert, highly powered, uh, driven algorithms driven by the Watsons of IBM world, it, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing consumer-driven uh, healthcare economy, and that changes everything. So consumer-driven, you think, is, is... I do. I think it's, it's going to be a very, very powerful factor. We all want to be taken care of when we're, when we're sick. You know? right. Right. <laughs> we all want to go someplace, and we want to be taken care of. But when you actually look at you know, health care consumption, the, you know, is significant. An overwhelming part of healthcare resources go to a vanishingly small part of the population. You know, the vast majority of the population doesn't really consume a lot of health care until, you know, until the later, later years of their lives. And so in that period in which they are <clears throat> excuse me, not acute care consumers, they're not chronic disease health care consumers, they're relatively well health care consumers. They, they, they consume health care uh, in their mobile, and they can be enabled through information. And <clears throat> as a result of that, their expectation of the delivery system changes. What do you mean I have to wait two weeks? What do you mean I can't get my CT scan uh, image tomorrow? What do you mean I won't understand what I'm looking at? What do you mean I have to wait for you to tell me what's wrong with me? What, why? So, you know, our, <laughs> we, we have, and I made this comment to a group this morning, <clears throat> we have always articulated as an industry, well, the medical record is always the patient's. Well, when you think about it, when in the old days, the medical record was a paper record, it was in a chart, and it was kept in the nurse's station. It wasn't kept at your bedside so you could read it, right? That was kind of the penultimate uh, insult to the notion that, the patient is the owner of their medical record information to where we are today, where there will be ubiquitous and universal access to that information by the consumer, by the patient, as it should be ultimately. Mm. That changes things. So I, I kind of look at any one event, ah, yeah, that's kind of intellectually interesting. I'm not sure what it means. It, it is, I think it's in any industry, it's about conversion. It's conversion about factors that are disparate in some cases, obvious uh, in other cases, to get to a tipping point. I think we're getting there. Okay. Um, can we talk about the strategic planning processes you've sure. used, the formal processes that you've used you use today versus, say, what you maybe you started using? How have you, how have you changed your style in that over the years? We have uh, we have um, we have changed over time. I am uh, when I first came here, we were an organization that uh, contracted out to the great consultancies of the world to do our strategic planning. It would produce a document after 18 months of. Uh, of arduous, at times agonal uh, processing of data and demographics and committees and board committees, and it would be delivered, it would be bound, it would be perfectly crisp paper, and it would be absolutely obsolete the day it was delivered. But God, we love those plans. Hundreds of thousands of dollars later. When I got here, I saw these plans stacked up in the hospital, and I was like, that's not me. <laughs> You know, and um, and so we we have historically, uh, since I've been here, have used a ground up, top down, bottoms up combination of planning that is very organic. Uh, it is very short cycle planning. I don't have 
I don't have a 50-year view. I don't have a 10-year view. I do have a lifetime view of adaptability. Uh, and, and so what I've tried to do with our organization is to have uh, a planning process that stimulates um, calculated risk-taking, that uh, enables comp absolute flexibility, um, that has a relatively short view from the standpoint of how we, we plan. So the degrees of probability, the degrees of certainty obviously attenuate as we go out further. Sure. We view ourselves currently in a continuous planning process. There is no discrete, there's no ending or beginning. We're always looking at that. They happen, it happens to be indexed because we have a fiscal year, we have to put together a budget by regulatory requirements, and so uh, serendipity, a lot of our planning kind of indexes to our fiscal year. But the reality of it is, is that we are in a continuous planning mode and we tend to stretch out our viewpoints to, you know, 2016. In this case, we're doing 16, 17, and 18. There are, however, events that lead us to have to make longer-term capital investments. So if we decide to invest in radiation therapy, we put a new radiation therapy in, $10 million later, you know, you, you have a long-lived long asset sitting there that you have to have a little bit of a longer view than a three-year story as to how it's going to be used. And so we do uh, recognize that for major capital investments, we have to stretch our legs and kind of look at what's the relative risks of demand for that particular service or product that we put in place that has a long-lived asset base, uh, that has significant resource commitments, and have to make that judgment as to what the relative probabilities of success five years, ten years from now will be. If, for whatever reason, we miscalculated uh, in that, what's our exit strategy? What, what do we do if if we've made a wrong uh, investment decision there. We Is that made, part of your adaptability? Absolutely. We, we, you know, we uh, built a Synergy uh, Health and Fitness building about 15 years ago. It's comprehensive uh, rehab services as well as a public fitness membership. Uh, and I looked at that and it was the right thing to do, but I knew if it was the wrong thing to do that we could easily exit that business, the fitness business, which was as which one could argue was a little bit further away from our core competency, but was still tethered to that core competency of rehabilitation services. That if our calculus on membership-driven uh, services was such that the marketplace couldn't support a premium price for it, which we did construct a premium price, we would have another uh, alternative use for that facility. Uh, we exited the membership, the premium price membership uh, facility, uh, service, health, uh, fitness facility, and we're renovating that facility to house consolidated musculoskeletal uh, physician specialties in there. So adaptability. Uh, long term, longer term investment from a planning perspective for sure, but what if you're wrong? What's your alternative? So you try to structure into any kind of longer term commitment a, a means of, of adapting to the change. Or at least to, to an, 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 a minimum. It doesn't work out. Right. Minimally envision yeah. another, another possibility. Uh -huh. It's a little bit harder for radiation therapy. You've got uh, you know, a million tons of concrete sitting out there. Radiation bunker, maybe fallout right, bunker. Right. I don't know. I, it's like it's a little bit. Not more a lot of demand for that either. But hopefully, it won't ever be. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's a little bit more yeah, uh, yeah, complex. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, we do use Hoshin planning here as a as a Hoshin deployment. It uh, comes out of, um, of out of Japan. It's in kind of a, we've integrated that with our lean processes. You've seen okay. you saw some of that up there. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I don't know if you're familiar with Hoshin planning. I'm not actually. Yeah, it's a, it's a, lean, but not Yeah, Hoshin. Okay. okay. Well, it's a way of, of deploying a strategy throughout your organization. We're into the second year of that, and okay. it's kind of interesting to see how that, uh, how that works. Um, so we, we're, you know, we don't make any pretensions about having the grand solution. I can't tell you how many 
countless Harvard Business Review articles I've read about planning, strategy planning, mm-hmm. um, what works, what doesn't work, how to do it, and there and I, you know, they've helped. They've only done anything, nothing more to convince me that there is no right way of doing it. So this, I'm sorry, Hosha planning? Hoshin. 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 Okay. Yeah. Tell us, tell me a little bit about that. And so it's okay. a way in which we uh, create alignment uh, between our principles, our values, our overarching strategic goals, the tactical expression of those goals, <clears throat> and it graphically uh, displays those goals and enables us then to subsequently uh, disseminate that into the organization and have the organization at lower levels provide feedback, input, uh, and uh, modification to those goals. And so it's kind of a cyclical process. It's um, constant feedback. And when you kind of, when you bring the elements of your hosting, your key strategies, your key action items that you want to be taking action on, and when you bring it down to lower levels, different levels of the organization, it's called spinning. It's kind of interesting. It's, you know, again, it's a Japanese view of planning. Mm-hmm. For us, what we like is it provides a simple, relatively simple graphical way of tracking and identifying and linking up our overarching goals, our values, uh, our tactical intentions, and with kind of the measurable uh, objectives that we're going to establish for it. So, And it enables you to push that down to, to the, to the, to the front line. To the, to the front line. So when, the, when you're sitting in a, if you're sitting in a, in a department uh, in a remote physician office and you see this Hoshin diagram, it's not so much about the diagram, it's, it's, it's about the connectivity of uh, mission, strategic intentionality, and what we're doing here today. Okay, great. Um, let's transition and talk kind of specifically about leadership and then I'd like a sure. little bit about mentorship. How would you kind of encapsulate your leadership philosophy? I mean, we've talked about fair about it now, but well, yeah. put it into um, if you were, you know, if you were to come to one of my management meetings, you'd think all well, chaos had broken out, you know, at a meeting. <laughs> so I, I really I like loose, tight management. I guess that's maybe the kind of the best way to describe it. I, I hire competent people. I provide them the support. It, encourage them to take the risk, encourage them to think differently than me, to push me, cause me to see things differently than what, the way I currently see it, um, see things. And so I tend to place competent people in their roles, align them around our principal vision, our mission, our key strategic objectives, and I let them go, truly. We, uh, you know, so there's a a high degree of autonomy amongst my management group. There is obviously coordination because we have to function at a very coordinated basis. Uh, we are increasingly more integrated in what we do than disintegrated in what we do. And yet I don't, I don't attempt to orchestrate uh, for them uh, the understanding of what their key roles and responsibilities are. They need to know what their key roles and responsibilities are. We create an environment in which they can create uh, naturally forming collaborative bridges, formally, informally. Um, there's a lot of matrix management that occurs here, uh, you know, uh, between people that have formal reporting relationships to each other, bridging over to other areas of the organization that they don't have formal reporting relationships. Leadership for me, as I said, on a singular basis, on an individual basis, what do I think the organization asks me to do? It, I, I think they ask me to provide principled guidance, support, ethically driven decision making in our organization through role modeling. You know. There, there. I, I, I look at, and we've faced many, many challenges in the organization. We always come back to what's the right thing to do. 
And frequently the right thing to do places you at individual jeopardy and may place your organization at financial jeopardy. But at the end of the day, we care for people and you have to always make the decision what's the right thing to do for that patient, for that family, for this community. And we're unswerving in that commitment of always doing the right thing. We talk a lot about our true north as an organization in terms of um, our orientation to those principles um, of you know, high quality care, sustainable health care, ideal patient experience, uh, and ensuring that when patients come here, they receive the very best care that we're capable of providing to them. We um, Are those the values that, of the organization? Yep, see them anywhere, okay. everywhere. Right. Um, they're, they're everywhere. And you know, I think as leadership, you know, leadership is frequently characterized as functioning in the gray areas. And a lot of times there are a lot of things that are gray, you know, in terms of either regulatory interpretation, legal interpretation. What does this mean? What do you think that means? I think our laws in this country are purposely written for the sake of being black and white. But, in you know, over decades of interpretation, they seem to become gray. And so we recognize that there are things that are in many, many cases that are, that are they may be gray. But as a leader, you always have the intuitive sense as to what's right. No matter how great it is, you just, okay. you just know that. And I look for that in people just to know what's the right thing to do here. And if they're uncertain, let's talk about what we think the right thing to do is. Uh, leadership, you know, when I think about the board, what does the board look for me to do as a CEO is, uh, to, is to try to, to understand the operating environment that we're in today and what we might be in tomorrow and create a pathway for our sustainability today going into tomorrow. Um, what is that pathway? What does it look like? What investments do we need to make? What kind of people do we need to have? What shouldn't we do? And, and so they look to me to do that. And so I, you know, I kind of view myself, you're not quite like the uh, kind of the harried uh, coach, you know, running up and down the sidelines of a, you know, of a football game, you know, because you know, I'm looking at them, you know. But, you know, sometimes when the play starts, it's out of their hands. You know, so what do they do? They recruit good people and they make sure they're competent, well cared for. There's a strategy, there's a tactic, there's a plan, and then the game begins. But what doesn't change, it can't change, is your confidence in the people that you hired, um, you know, and their adaptability. So I, you know, I, I can't say I have a, a, an expressed leadership philosophy. I don't know if I'm that smart. Um, but I do know when, what to do and when to do it and what the right thing is. Okay. Um. One of the important roles of a leader, of course, is creating a positive culture. culture. Mm -hmm. How would you describe the culture here at, at Exeter? And mm -hmm. what do you do to try to, to cultivate it? Yeah, I'm asked that a lot. I'm asked that a lot by people we hire. You know, what is it? You know, a lot of times they don't quite say, what's the culture? They'll say, well, what is it like to work there? Same thing in some ways. And I, I, I kind of reflect back as to why, why have I stayed here? You know, have, am I... Have I simply escorted the culture that was to the 21st century as a, as a leader? Maybe. Have I uh, changed it in any way? I don't know. But I, I certainly think about the values that we have as an organization. We are a deeply caring organization. And you know, a lot of organizations say that. We are amongst ourselves. Most of us receive our health care here. You know, and there is nothing that creates a more intimate connection to an organization than one that you work in, that you turn to to help you if you're dying or, or to help you when you're really sick, when you have your colleague take care of you. There is nothing like that anywhere, you know. And so it's, it's really quite a remarkable experience. And, you know, coming uh, as you do from the military, there are those instances in very close team operations where, you know, one person thinks, the other blinks. They're just there funking, they're functioning, they're syncopating. 
the mutual dependency is so, so intimate, you know. It's kind of like that here, spread out, you know, over a very large organization. And so the culture here is one is uh, one of intimacy, respect. It is uh, one that doesn't suffer fools well. Um, you've got to be on your game here. <laughs> Physicians sense that when they come here. They're surrounded by really smart people who are always pushing the envelope to do things better. And so you you, you really got to be smart to work here. Just just have to be. You uh, it's an organization that encourages curiosity. I would like to think it's a, a, an organization that encourages dissent. Uh, someone somewhere. How do you ensure that it encourages dissent? You know, it's that's, that's, it's, it's, it's hard. hard. It's right? real hard. You know, okay. we we survey our employees, and a lot of times we get feedback that no, this is you know uh, I'm afraid. I'm afraid uh, to speak up in a in a particular department. And I'm like, how is that possible? You know, why did that happen? How do you how do you ensure that what you believe to be true, in your own mind, is in fact true, on the ground? We do survey. We uh, we do a lot of uh, surveying of our staff confidentially to kind of get a sense as to what we call alignment, alignment with those values. And where there is not alignment, why why is that happening? Is it leadership? Is it communication? What's happening in that unit to cause someone to say that? I'm, I'm fearful uh, to express dissent, uh, and, and that's dangerous. In a it's very it's very dangerous in a high reliability environment, in a kinetic environment. You know that in the military, it's dangerous in healthcare, where the slightest thing that goes wrong, not because of anyone's intentional uh, uh, commission, but you know, it's prone to human error. And another set of eyes, another willingness to speak up, is a critical factor for ensuring uh, safety. And that's what drives us in this organization deeply is this notion of patient safety. And so you've got to have an environment where anyone at any given time can say, wait a minute, what are you doing? Whether it's someone sitting at a leadership meeting with me and I think, oh, I think we ought to do this as a strategy. And, and if they all sit, you know, all 13 of my, of my executives sit there and nod their head, I know there's something wrong. You know, there's got to be a different viewpoint of the world. And so it's a critical role, I think, of the leader to sense that, to survey that, to understand what that means. And I, as I said, in an environment that demands high reliability, such as healthcare, dissent is a critical part of safety. Um, and so uh, that's something that we work very hard on. But um, So if you get that kind of feedback from a survey, what do you do? How do well, you respond to that? Well, you know, usually it's like people's, you know, it's, it's always interesting. It's like, really, is that possible? You know, because we're not like that, right? Isn't that the least? <laughs> well, all the time we say that. Yeah. That can't be us. Is, is yeah. that us, really? <laughs> and so you've got to move beyond that to recognize that, you know, you've, you, you, if you have parts of your organization that are not, not aligned with those very important principal values, you need to understand why. And we work very closely with the management on that unit to try to understand. Well, tell us what's different here. What's happening? Um, what do you do from a communication standpoint, uh, verbally and non-verbally? What's the operating environment like? What are the colleagues like there? Um, you know, and so while we have a culture here in our organization, there are microcultures everywhere. You sure. know, and so it's you know you, you think you're dealing with a homogenous organization that believes it has a unified culture, but in reality there are microcultures everywhere, shift to shift, unit to unit. It's really Absolutely. quite striking, and that is good in some ways. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, yet, nonetheless, there's got to be an overarching connection to the principles of the organization. So we do a lot of diagnostics on that, where we, if there's uh, something going astray, we do a lot of intervention, training, uh, working team building with groups, trying to understand what is causing uh, a disconnect from our overall, overall principle values. Um, and that's, and that's nonstop. 
Let's, let, let's just finish up on talking about uh, mentorship a little sure. bit. Sure. It sounds like you had somebody looking out for you at the beginning of your career a little bit. I did. Uh, uh, well, nobody, I, you know, nobody officially, you know, I, I, okay. when you got uh, posed the question to me, did I ever have an official mentor? And, yeah. And I, and I really didn't. I'm a student of leaders, though. I, okay. A contemporary and past. I, okay. I, I, even today, you know, you, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. But it always surprises me the way other leaders behave, good or bad. You know, and there's always something to learn. Yeah. And uh, and it's not just in the healthcare industry; it's it's throughout all industries. How do people deal with uncertainty? How do they deal with catastrophe? You know, whether it's a you know the BP oil spill in the times of crisis, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. failure to grow earnings or revenue in the case of a Yahoo a CEO, or someone dealing in a healthcare crisis coming out of you know an adverse patient uh, uh, event. You'll learn a lot by what they do and what they don't do and try to juxtapose yourself into their shoes. What would you do? So I do that continuously. I've had the opportunity to work with board members who are very strong leaders in their own rights. Um, and I, you know, in, in my own encounters, in my own work, I've always learned from uh, all the people that I've worked with that are strong leaders, not so strong leaders, you always learn something from them. But you know, was there someone who actually took me under their wing <laughs> and made okay. me a project of theirs? Yeah. Sometimes I wish that was the case, yeah. you know. <laughs> I kind of go back to the sense, you know, sometimes leadership's kind of lonely. Yeah. You know, um, but I sought people out. Uh, yeah. You know, the gentleman who directed me up here was a, yeah. a, a person who, you know, would always make it a point just to, he wasn't mentoring me. He probably didn't think that, but I mm-hmm. took it as that in terms of asking mm-hmm. me about what I thought and what I did and what, what I was doing. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's, uh, there, it's, uh, we've not had that. We try to do that in our own organization, which okay. is probably your follow on yeah. question. Yeah. Mentoring, maybe because I haven't had as much of an opportunity. I'm very keen on that. Okay. Of how do you mentor someone? How do you consciously and subconsciously track them and, mm-hmm. and engage them, uh, and spend time with them on the clinical level? We have very formal mentoring programs. You do. Uh, okay. We do. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, Outside of an official training program, like they're yep. a resident or something like that. No, still... you're new to our organization and you're a clinician, you're going to get mentored here in terms okay. of who we are, how we work, uh-huh. things that we do, things that we don't do, why, you know, someone to go to in case, you know, you need help. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we also uh, do that for our leaders as well. Uh, and uh, so we do, we do try to mentor and to create opportunities for that. And, you know, We've had formal programs for leadership. We've had informal programs. We've kind of cycled through it. We've had a relatively stable uh, leadership group in this organization for a number of years. But when new when new managers come in, you know they're they are connected with other leaders in the organization. They're tracked uh, so that they're never out there alone in yeah. terms of how you're doing. And as an individual, um, you know there are people in the organization who I have a particular interest in because I see them so, I see them as high performers in the future that I take a particular interest in in, uh, and, and ensuring that they are growing and developing. Uh, so that's kind of the way we do it. All right. Um, what about professional associations? Which ones do you belong to and what would you recommend Well, to people who are interested in healthcare administration? Yeah, and so there's kind of the before and the after. In the early stages, I think I was a member of every professional association that you could shake a stick at. Okay. Uh, you know, so as American College of Healthcare Executives, as part of the New England Planners Group, I mean, it went on and on and on. And I'll be honest with you, uh, 
at that at that early stage, uh, I struggled with identifying with them, what they thought and how they viewed the world, um, and so. Increasingly, I found that um, the thinking there was not kind of thinking that I had about healthcare in the future and where we might be going as an industry. And so they became less and less intellectually stimulating to me. Uh, and I, and so I, one by one, I kind of they kind of dropped out. And okay. So where I uh, moved from there is uh, I, I got engaged in a variety of different board roles in other industries, which I've enjoyed a lot, insurance industry and on the industrial side of industry. And uh, so I, right now, I'm not a member. I, okay. uh, they're going, oh, no, okay. they're going, they'll, they'll strike me in the rear end, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, the American College of Healthcare Executives, what do you mean you're not a member? No, I haven't been a member in, in uh, decades. Okay. Okay. So, so not a strong value there. Um, but... Um, one thing that I know our program is very grateful for is you take a intern from our program every year. Two. Oh, uh, two. Now, is it? Okay. Yeah. So, what are you looking for when you select an intern, and um, what does a successful intern do when they're on the job with you? Yeah, this um, is a little special advice for for my students. No, not at all. <laughs> I, and actually, we just bought uh, two interns and just made that decision a few weeks ago. I look. Uh, I look for people, interns, individuals to come into this organization that uh, are really intellectually curious and willing to take intellectual risks. They are given an opportunity here to interact at a very high level uh, with parts of an organization that they may not normally get a chance to do if they stay in the healthcare track for years. And I want them to see the organization in all lights, good and bad. Um, and I want them to draw observations and conclusions to them that we can intellectually challenge. What do you see? What do you think you saw? What do you think it means? And so the first prerequisite is that you've got to be able to see, you know, your powers of observation. And it's not just, uh, you know, seeing one box move to another box, but in the context of your educational experience and what you've learned in theory in class, what do you think you saw what was going on there um, or what we're doing as an organization? And so that's really important. Self-direction is really important, um, and they need to be self-organizing. We do provide support for them so that they don't totally drown in a big ocean or what might per be perceived that way. But self-organizing, uh, confidence in oneself, the ability to, uh, to, uh, to communicate in a powerful way, in an articulate way, the articulate way both verbally and uh, in writing, is critical. And I guess... Probably beyond that is to develop a comfort in oneself that you're coming into an organization, an organization that is affording you enormous opportunity to learn. How do you take advantage of that? Not that you use the organization in a pejorative sense, but how do you take advantage of that? You know, and how do you peer around the corner? How do you dig a little bit deeper than someone else would normally dig? You know, so if you've got 15, 20 minutes with an executive and you kind of covered typical questions that you would have. How do you go off the grid a little bit to understand a little bit more deeply their vulnerabilities or what they do or the risks that they take or the concerns that they have about leading a function? Do you know how to do that? Do you feel confident doing that? So we've been fortunate uh, having uh, generally uh, students, interns have come through that have been able to do that. Um, you know, and they've got to contribute to us. 
we want them to contribute to us. And I tell them that way. I say, you know, you tell them that you're, you're getting paid for your summer's time here. I want you to give me a work product, your best work product. And I'll help you choose what that's going to be. But ultimately, it's going to be your choice. It's going to be your work product. And you're asking a CEO to judge that. And so I want value for my money. You know, I yeah. want you to produce value. Yeah. And uh, some of the work that's been done has been startlingly good. Uh, yeah. Last year's work was outstanding. Um, oh, you know, and it's, you know, it's, it's challenging. Uh, and, I, and this is a problem that I think just is kind of the structural problem with it is that educationally they're not in a lot of places that they need to be to be able to form conclusions and insightful observations about what they see in the healthcare. They're just developmentally. They just have not been exposed to that. And so, uh, and I enjoy... That's part of the process. That is part of the process, exactly. And so, you know, a lot of times we, you know, whether it's on health policy issues, you know, uh, you know, economic issues, governance issues, leadership issues, I always go through a process of kind of feeling out how much of this is real life experience that you've had and how much of it is theoretical and how much you just don't know. Uh, and uh, and that's just part of it. Uh, yeah. There's no question about it. Um, and so, um, and, and the organization, I particularly, but other people, have enjoyed having uh, interns that are in that are precocious that kind of ask those questions that always cause you to pause and go, hmm, that was a good question. <laughs> we all like that. Yeah. We all yeah. like that. So, kind of in conclusion, um, what advice do you have for someone thinking about going into healthcare administration today? What education should they pursue? What kind of initial jobs yeah. should they be looking for? Yeah, I, um, I did, you know, I just had a long conversation with one of the uh, uh, interns um, from last year, just a couple of weeks ago, um, as they were sorting through directionally where they want to go. Um, and they were most interested in how I got to where I got to, and almost everyone is, you know, and like, well, how'd you do that? And I, and, and I'd like to say I had a grand plan, but as you can see in this interview, I didn't have a grand plan per se. What I tell them is that. You know, generally, I'm a person that will go through a door. Just am. You know, I, uh, you know, I, I, I have a view that there, are, there are so many, many opportunities. As long as it's not life-threatening, you know, uh, and you can assess that, you know. But my tendency is to go through a door uh, without necessarily a clear understanding of what the destination will be. But I always have a sense directionally of where I'm going, uh, and I. And so at, at this stage of their career, I encourage them to go through doors. You know, and, and don't get so structured around a destination that you never get your trip started. And so their healthcare is, is a remarkably uh, diverse uh, um, uh, opportunity for employment. It represents enormous opportunities. $3 trillion a year we spend. You can't find a place there uh, to right. work. You know, and so the, don't get wrapped around conventions well you know that well i need to you know get my master's degree it is absolutely helpful there is no question about it especially if you can get it in a very rigorous program it will help in that rigor but go into the, i always tell them go into the program mature yeah, go into it mature uh, knowing a little bit more about life and experience it'll just enrich in your graduate studies but you know so whether you go in the pharmacology side you go into the you know the biotech side you go into the actual delivery side you go into the policy side you go into the insurance side you go into the physician side all of those are great opportunities uh, and one will lead to another opportunity to another opportunity have a sense of what your destination is um, and be surprised when you arrive there um, so I it, you know, there is sometimes they just kind of get this kind of this, uh, this mental model constructed that I need to do A, B, and C 
to get to D, and then I can get to where you are, Kevin. And I don't think it's that way anymore. It wasn't that way for me. You know, right. I could have easily been somewhere else than sitting here talking to you today. Uh, but I always, like I said, I always have a sense of, you know, directionally, kind of where do you want to be going? You'd be surprised when the opportunity, you know, stares you in the face. A lot of people don't even see it. And the other thing is, you know, I tell them this all the time, uh, is that you just never say no to opportunity. You just never say no to, to someone who you're working with who asks you if you can do more response, do something more for them. So we've hired, I can't tell you how many interns into this organization who have, who have had stellar careers here. And, uh, you know, and they have been eager to take on more responsibility. When I was asked to be the CEO uh, in this organization, I was three years out of graduate school. What did I know? I didn't say no. Right. I can figure that out. Yeah. You know, I've always bl- I can figure that out. I have enough yeah. of a common understanding of what it means to run an organization, I thought, that I could do it. Uh, yeah. And so um, and when the opportunity is presented to you, take the opportunity. Get the experience. You can parley it and you can do something else somewhere else. Remain true to your values. What are your values? Um, so that's why I always kind of advise them. That is great advice. Thank you so much for being a part of the Health Leader Forge today. I've enjoyed it. Enjoy the conversation. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll see you again in about two weeks.